This is Crossroads, a Get Religion podcast. A 2021 study from LifeWay Research based on data from three dozen denominations found that 4,500 churches closed in 2019. Only 3,000 were started. 20 years ago, the average congregation in the United States had 137 people. According to the Faith Communities Today study, today that number is 65, about the size of a congregation that Bob Smetana writes about for Religion News Service in an article called for a small Chicago church, closing down was an act of faith. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. And he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. We used to be able to say that liberal churches closed more often on average than conservative ones. Have things changed with COVID, et cetera? Yeah, well, everything all around us is changing in a number of different ways. But you're making a a reference there, probably, if, if I could read your mind, you're probably referring to a famous book that came out in about, I think, 1970, 1971. How old were you in 1970 or 71? In 1970, I was six years old. Okay. Well, a very famous book by a National Council of Churches uh, scholar named Dean Kelly came out, and it's been quoted ever since. And the name of that book was Why Conservative Churches Are Growing. That's a book that I would imagine in Lutheran circles, people at the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church like to quote, more than people at the ELCA. That's just my guess there. And for a long time, we could presume that that equation explained, if not all of church growth and church decline, it was pretty easy to say that that was the major factor or that was right at the top of the list. And I still think that it is a major factor but things have gotten so much more complex. When I started thinking about this today, after reading what I think is a very important story published by a veteran religion writer named Bob Smetana, someone we've talked about a lot here. Bob uh, used to work for the Nashville Tennessean. He worked for a data and research branch of a company linked to the Southern Baptist Convention, and he's been at RNS for quite some time. And he wrote a very personal story because it was about a congregation that he has a history with in Chicago, and it's a part of the Evangelical Covenant Church. And this is one of those situations where the word evangelical in the title does explain, in large part, a theological orientation to a congregation. And he's talking about this church's decision to close its doors and kind of what they went through, the some of the factors that, that affected this. And I thought he did a great job of listing some of the factors that are causing churches to close these days. Yet at the same time, I started preparing kind of my own list. And golly, to use a Texas Baptist word of exclamation, there are so many angles 
to the church closing story. And there's even different sections of the newspaper you're likely to run into this story. So I started forming my own list here of factors that I think reporters need to think about when covering this story. And clearly this is something Bob Smetana has just done a lot of thought about because he just literally yesterday, his new book came out called Reorganized Religion, The Reshaping of the American Church and Why It Matters. And a large part of this book is looking at different kinds of church decline and what's causing it. And obviously COVID inspired this to some degree, but I'm sure knowing Bob that he dealt with a lot of other subjects as well. But just to give you a quick answer, yes, theological orientation matters. But it also matters how a church's theology is being lived out. And when I say that, let me reference something that has come up in many, many of, of these broadcasts. And that is something that I think one of the biggest stories in American religion today is simply a matter of birthright. Who is having children and what churches are not having children? Then you attach to that what churches are making converts and what churches are not making converts. And that's a massive factor. And then you get to a third step of that, which is what churches are retaining their children and what churches are retaining their converts. Just those three levels. Now, do you hear any theological connotations of those questions? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I mean, obviously a church with falling birth rates doesn't automatically tell you that there's bad theology in a parish, but it may tell you, quite frankly, how cultural a church is, how it fits with trends in American culture versus churches that are countercultural. I mean, just to put it in another faith context, in America, liberal theological forms of Judaism are in rapid decline. What is the only part of American Judaism that is in rapid ascent, where the numbers are growing? That would be forms of Orthodox Judaism. And one of the main things you look for is higher birth rates. Why do they have higher birth rates? because they think God's supposed to bless a family with children. And they see that as a sign of their relationship to God, as opposed to a sign of their socioeconomic status or lack thereof, or how much money they feel they have to dedicate to the raising of children. And you can hear already the religious and cultural questions that come up with that. There are obviously theological questions related to whether or not a church is making converts. Is the pulpit preaching that people need to know Jesus Christ in order to be saved? Well, there are churches that don't say that anymore because theologically their ministers are either openly universalist, they believe all people are saved, or they are kind of closeted universalists. But then again, you have the question, is the church 
actively evangelistic. The actual congregation, the people in the pews, because most effective evangelism is actually done by the members, not by the clergy. So there's three different levels to the convert question. Then you get to the retention question, and you immediately say, well, maybe they're losing their children because some people would say they're not relevant enough. Others would say they're too strict. People like me would say, well, maybe they're not talking enough about the actual forces in their children's lives, like smartphones and social media networks and the impact of entertainment and mass culture on their lives. And maybe their homes think they're conservative, but they're leading the exact same lives as everybody else on their block. And we see similar levels of divorce. And yes, we see a similar level of birth rate and other demographics. So, wow, the, the, the minute you start leaning into this, you start hitting all kinds of stuff. But all that stuff, or frequently that stuff, has theological implications. There's a lot of biographical information in yeah. Smitana's piece with RNS of this congregation, its history. Did you see any of those things explored as factors in why a congregation like this is closing. Yeah, I did, and some of it was very interesting, but what he never really kind of pounced on is that one of the biggest things in America right now is kind of what the, the small-town America, the middle America versus urban America. And this, of course, is an urban church. And he explores, for example, that there's a Zoom effect. Not only did they lose people during the Zoom services related to COVID, but you also have more people who don't have to live in the city of Chicago anymore to work in Chicago. And then you have people that maybe they don't have to live in Chicago anymore to even go to schools that are in Chicago or go to schools that are like the ones in Chicago. So you have less of an incentive to move into a, a city and maybe there's less of an incentive to move into the urban inner suburban areas that many of these older churches of all denominations are located in. So basically what he says is they're in a declining part of the city, and that's having an impact on their membership. I thought it was very interesting that he said the church had approximately 65 members going into COVID and an average of attendance of about 40. Now that sounds pretty small, but if you're following data coming out of mainline Protestant denominations, and this denomination is not a mainline Protestant denomination, you know that there are many, many churches now under 65. And what's fascinating about 65 as a number is that's 20 people under another famous statistic that I've heard experts in the field of church growth talk about since the 1980s when I started covering these stories. And that is that 85 is a very symbolic number, 85 or 90. It takes about 85 to 90 active members to sustain a mainline Protestant denomination church just at the level of paying the salary and the benefits required as a minimum by most of these denominations. 
Well, when you think about that, you then look at statistics like the Episcopal Church has something like 75 to 80% of its parishes now are either below that number or close to it. And I'm sure that this would be even worse in some other denominations like the Disciples of Christ, the American Baptist Church. I mean, so the mainline world is struggling to keep the doors open. In this case, it appears that the church could have stayed open, but that other factors plugged in. But I wanted to say that, you know, that the magic 65 to 85 window to have enough money to stay open or to keep a building open, we now need to talk about another number, which I think is relevant to the story, and that's what some people are now beginning to call micro parishes. And in the Episcopal Church, and in Anglicanism, we're now hearing about microdioceses. I mean, these are dioceses that all of their churches combined may have a total attendance of under a thousand, or in several notable cases, they may have a dozen parishes left with a total Sunday morning attendance of under 250. Well, how many churches are micro parishes? which just for the sake, based on my reading, I'm defining as a micro-parish as one with over 25 people in attendance week after week. That's another layer to the story that not all small churches are created equal. There are mainline churches that still have their doors open, quite frankly, because they have trusts. They have bank accounts from previous generations that have donated money that are sitting in bank accounts earning interest, and that's keeping the church open. I'll also give you another item from my list. We are reading more and more stories about churches that are staying open because they are renting out parts of their facilities to nonprofit groups or even government agencies are renting space in these congregations because it's cheaper than trying to open another office down in an urban neighborhood where it costs money for space. And these churches, A, need the money, but B, they can offer really good deals for buildings during the weekdays that have like a, a large auditorium or they have a fellowship hall. They may have a kitchen. They may have lots of things that nonprofit groups need to hold meetings. Now, can you think of a theological implication of that? trend, which I've read so many stories about lately, of nonprofits and even government agencies renting spaces in churches? Well, I do see some theological ramifications to churches renting out, especially to governmental agencies. What about you? Well, just think of this. If you're in a big city, and big cities tend to be, frankly, more liberal than smaller cities and surrounding areas and whatever. And especially if you're in a part of the country with blue zip codes. Do you think that major nonprofit groups and governments would be more willing to rent spaces from theologically liberal congregations that agree with them on issues of marriage and sexuality than they would be to rent space in, say, a Assemblies of God church or a Southern Baptist church? Yeah, I think I think that's the case. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think even if it there was no 
mixing of the ideologies or the theologies, they definitely feel more at home with people of their political persuasion, if not theological yeah, persuasion. I, yeah, I think in some cases you might actually have clauses in government and in some nonprofit groups may actually have clauses that they're not allowed to cooperate with churches that openly proselytize and evangelize. Or now in some cities, I'm sure you're beginning to see clauses added in about gender identity and sexuality. So there's yet another theological angle here. So if you're counting on nonprofits and governments to be able to help keep your doors open, are all churches created equal? I definitely think the answer is no. I'd have a lot of trouble thinking that one of the massive foundations linked to the empires of Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, even Ford, and others like that are going to be happy to write checks to keep the doors open of theologically conservative churches in major cities. I was thinking about this just a moment ago as you were speaking. I know of a congregation of my own denomination, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, that actually coexists in the same building, different service times, obviously, Mm -hmm. with, I believe, a more conservative Episcopal congregation. Mm. They're coexisting using the same, I'll I'll say for the lack of a better term, worship space, the same sanctuary. Yeah. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think the pastor and the priest have office right next door to each other in the building. And that's how they're, I must assume that for one or both of them, this is in response to an existential threat. It's possible. It, it, there could be theological agreements and friendships that led to that. We don't know. But I am assure, would assure you you're talking about one of these alternative Anglican congregations as opposed to members of the Episcopal Church. Yes that are all being born and are startups. So in effect, what you're talking here is something that is kind of the theological version of the fact that you have quite a few fading churches in a host of denominations, maybe even Southern Baptist in some of these inner suburbs and downtown areas that have thriving Korean or Latino congregations sharing their space that are a part of their own denomination. And that's obviously a model that has tremendous promise for churches in all denominations. That is, if they don't have some sort of theological crisis going on that would make their ethnic members less likely to cooperate with them. I mean, I would think right now in the United Methodist Church, it would be very hard for a liberal United Methodist congregation to have a Nigerian congregation sharing its space because of their theological differences and the split that's occurring within their own denomination at the global, regional, and local levels. So all of these things raise theological questions. So what are some media angles on church closure stories that hopefully someone will be looking into? This is a story that's obviously not going away. Well, here's what I think is a valid angle that someone needs to explore, but it's a subtle question. I encountered it decades ago when I began covering debates about pastoral care as a major function in evangelical churches and stuff, and over and over I heard 
experts, including the late Vernon Grounds, one of my heroes, who was one of the founders of the pastoral care movement. And then he wrote an article urging pastors to stop doing extended sessions of pastoral care. What he basically said was, if your church focuses most of its ministry on the people you already have, you are functionally mainline Protestant. And I believe it might have been Vernon that first turned that into a phrase. If not, it came out of a dialogue between the two of us. Churches can become functionally universalist. They already assume that they've won all the people that they need to win. They'll just keep baptizing children. They'll just take care of the people they have who are writing them checks. And they'll just somehow roll on. And there are varieties of reasons for this. I mean, there are churches in ethnic traditions. I mean, in my own tradition, we see a lot of struggles with this in Greek Orthodoxy and in several other churches who have ethnic heritages. And at some point, they're tempted to believe, well, if we just keep our culture alive, we'll keep our church alive. But that isn't how churches create new life. In the Missouri Synod Lutheran world, I would assume that a lot of immigrant churches from the German era are still around that face very similar questions here. How do we take care of those that we already have, that feel comfortable in our circle, that go to our schools? How do we take care of them and at the same time enthusiastically reach out into the wider community and to other ethnicities and Maybe this has musical implications and worship implications. and It certainly has implications in our schools, if we have private schools. So this label, functional universalism, describes a lot of ways that churches that may have conservative theological perspectives, they might be Southern Baptist or whatever, but they're functioning and they're living like mainstream churches that think their primary duty is to take care of the people who are already in their pews. Keep the peace, counsel them, help make their lives better, and that'll be enough. What we're seeing in the America that we live in right now is that isn't enough. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. He's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, Please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at GetReligion.org.